Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. This week's seen the start of the Paris climate change negotiations in which 195 countries are trying to negotiate a big new agreement to tackle global warming. But is there any chance that they'll actually reach a worthwhile deal? Joining me on the line from Paris is our correspondent there, Michael Stoddard, and here in the studio is Martin Sanbu, who runs our free lunch blog. Michael, they've been going a couple of days now. Um, Give us an idea of the atmosphere at the beginning of the talks and how hopeful people are. Well, the atmosphere at the beginning was 150 world leaders came to Le Bourget in northern Paris, and they made these very flowery declarations about saving the world. And then they all left. And today and yesterday were the first real days of negotiations. And I think the feeling is that we've gone back to old sticking points and old rivalries. And there hasn't been a huge amount of progress so far. And there are a number of sticking points which haven't been resolved. Is it likely that that's it for the world leaders? I mean, they're going to come back at some stage and going to try and resolve these sticking points? Or is it really now down to the negotiators? No, the world leaders are done, but the foreign ministers come next week to bash out the final agreement. So the idea is this week, the delegates get it into a sufficient shape so then the final negotiations can happen at a more senior political level next week. That's the idea. And there are numerous sticking points. I mean, you in your articles have identified things like emissions reduction targets, whether wealthy countries will pay developing countries which parts of the accord should be legally binding, the whole question of fossil fuels and how quickly you phase those out. I mean, of all of those, which do you anticipate, you know, if it comes down to one or two things, what will it be? I think it's about the extent to which money is transferred between wealthy countries and poorer countries. And then the flip side of that is to what extent poorer countries will agree to ramp up their carbon-cutting measures every five years or so. So the developing countries are saying, fine, well, maybe we'll do this, but we want lots of money in return. And the developed countries are saying, well, I don't know how much money we want to give you, but we definitely want you to keep ramping up your emissions cutting. So that's, broadly speaking, the conundrum that's being faced and the circle that they're trying to square at the moment. And Martin, on one level, it sounds like a kind of classic arguing about money. But there are also moral issues at stake, aren't there? And there have been interesting articles in our own paper and elsewhere, particularly from Indians, saying, look, you are trying to lock us into a lower stage of development because development is so closely linked to how much energy you can expend. And if they have to cap their emissions at levels well below those that we use in the West, isn't that deeply unfair? Well, I think you're right. We shouldn't underestimate the importance of moral feeling and moral arguments in political stances. So I think this is not just a negotiation trick, right? This is probably um, quite genuinely felt. And and it's quite right, actually. It is true that the rich world got where they are through a massive use of uh, 
carbon-intensive uh, technologies, and it's our fault, the rich world's fault, that the atmosphere now has a bit too much carbon and is getting more. In other words, most, most of the stuff that's up there was put there by the developed that, world. That's quite right. So India especially, but many other developing countries say, you know, don't close off the path you took to development. So as far as that goes, that's a fair argument. Of course, there are things to say on the other side, which is today we know more. We know what damage it causes. So maybe the correct conclusion or the better moral outcome isn't for India and China to spew as much carbon into the atmosphere as we have, but to compensate them financially for the fact that they won't. And that's kind of the shape the compromise is taking. But another point is that technology is very different today than it was, you know, in Manchester 200 years ago, or what have you. You can actually develop in much cleaner ways now. And this has changed not just over hundreds of years, but in the last 10, 15 years, the cost of renewable energy generation, solar panels and others, it's just coming down amazingly fast. And I think that's why, despite all the haggling, the feelings seem more positive now than six years ago in Copenhagen, which was the last big jamboree of world leaders on the climate. Things seem like they're a little bit more feasible now, that there are ways to solve these disagreements. But some people say, you mentioned Copenhagen, that we're in danger of just repeating the same mistake and that, yes, there may be ways of, if not solving, ameliorating the problem of global warming. But in the end, it's going to be technology that does the job, not some massive international treaty involving all sorts of compromises. Well, those things aren't necessarily incompatible. They might, in fact, depend on one another, right? So it could be that to create the incentives to adopt these technologies you need some sort of global cooperation. Does it have to be a legally binding treaty? Maybe not. This time around, we see these non-binding commitments, but they actually seem like they might work better than legally binding treaties that people end up ignoring. If you have the incentives in place to put some money in, to put in more greener technologies, one interesting fact about technological development is that the more you produce, let's say, solar cells, the faster you develop the technology. So the efficiency of production, the cost of generating solar energy depends a lot on how much you've actually created because there's a learning curve in the industry. So the producers of solar panels are much better now at producing good solar panels than they were 10 or 20 years ago. So one idea here that technology experts say is subsidize the adoption of some of these technologies and you'll see it's quite predictable that prices will keep falling and then it will become self-sustained. So it might be that technology still requires some political push before it becomes self-sufficient, but the other way around too. If technology is advanced enough, that political commitment might be easier because it looks cheaper. And Michael, I mean, how much is this shadow of Copenhagen still sort of falling over Paris? Do people worry that they're going to end up with a Copenhagen-style debacle, or do they sense that, knowing what happened there, that they've found a kind of way of doing it differently? I think there's so much political momentum that everyone feels like they're going to get some kind of agreement. I mean, whether it's an agreement that's going to be a political victory, but scientific catastrophe is to be seen. You know, you have these NDCs, which are voluntary and in some ways not really very ambitious. So you have to ask to find, we'll get an agreement, but what are we really getting an agreement on? And is that really enough to do what's necessary to keep the uh, global temperature below 2%. So I think there's a feeling that it won't be a total failure like Copenhagen, 
but it certainly will be a qualified success, I'd say, is also the feeling. Is there any sense yet of who's providing the kind of intellectual and political leadership at the conference? Is anyone emerging, kind of, if I can use the phrase, making the weather in a kind of political fashion? Well, it's all being steered by the French on a kind of technical level, and Fabius, the French foreign minister, is sort of slickly steering everyone towards a deal. In terms of big voices that are emerging, it's incredibly disparate. You know, even within the G77 and China, there are very separate voices. You know, there are some of the more radical South Americans who are talking about statist, interventionist measures and talking about justice and being sort of very antagonistic. And then there's the Americans and then there's the Indians. And there's really little north-south divide or obvious lines. It's quite disparate. And there, I wouldn't say there was one single intellectual leader emerging, no. Martin? Yeah, I would just like to inject a little bit of optimism because it's true we remember Copenhagen as a political debacle. But think about what's happened since. Last year was the first year where you had the global economy growing but emissions being constant, right? It was the first time you saw a sign of this decoupling that you can actually have economic growth and keep carbon emissions under control. At the same time, you've seen in a lot of individual countries, but important countries, moves towards a more aggressive, if you like, climate policy. That's true both of China and the US. And that happened partly for bilateral reasons after Copenhagen with Chinese and American leaders sort of sitting down and, and talking about this then and, and later. So China has come a long way, still has a very long way to go. But despite the failure, let's call it that, of Copenhagen, there's been progress since. But what do you say to those who say, yes, but the progress is too slow? We've set ourselves this limit that the world shouldn't warm beyond two degrees. We're clearly going to bust through that. And emissions may have stabilized, but at a very high level, which will spell real trouble. Yes, and concentrations in the atmosphere will keep going up, even if annual admissions uh, stabilize, which it's too soon to say if they, if they even have. I take some progress rather than none. I do think that uh, we should also take heart from the fact that the progress we have seen is more than anyone would have predicted, I think, in 2009, both politically, but again, especially technologically. If you think about not just renewable energy generation, the technological progress there, it's now about 85% cheaper to generate solar energy than it was 15 years ago. It's huge. And experts say it could fall by another 50% in the next 15 years and be competitive with coal, the dirtiest fuel. So uh, technology has improved. But also on the consumption side, I mean, think about the revolution happening in the car industry. Electric cars 10 years ago, it was sort of a pie-in-the-sky vision, right? But now it's, it's becoming reality very, very quickly. Okay, and then thank you for that optimism. It's uh, not not normal on my podcast, but Michael, just to finish it off, can you give us a sense of what we should be looking for from Paris in the next week or so or as, as the negotiations come to a climax? What would be good news and what would be bad news? Well, I think what would be good news is an agreement on the financing. So if we could actually get a number or at least a meaningful structure for a transfer of funds between the developed to the developing world, I think that would be a win. I think it would also be a win if the developing world agreed to up their emissions cuttings every five years, because at the moment the NDCs aren't especially ambitious and they aren't enough to keep us below 2%. So an agreement for a review and an augmentation of the NDCs would be a large success. 
I think there are other smaller measures talk about creating a kind of UN body to manage a global carbon market, to create unified accounting across carbon units would be something that could actually make a huge difference in the long term. So there might be other things like that that will emerge, which might actually have more practical difference to the day-to-day life of businesses and countries. Okay, thank you very much indeed to Michael Stoddart there in Paris and also to Martin Sanbu here in the studio with me in London. That's it for this week. Until next Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Week. Goodbye.